0: I'm glad to say I started recording, that's 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 the title, The Fifty Shades of Steph (laughs)
1: Block. Definitely, yeah.
0: It's Friday, May the 28th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Eurovision Reject, and I'm joined by Paul Peters, master Student in Civil Engineering and Binnenhof Architecture Critic. Paul, let's start with you, because uh, uh, everyone, every journalist on Twitter has been uh, sharing pictures uh, from a guided tour of the temporary home of the Parliament, and uh, that we couldn't let this opportunity pass uh, without uh, you chipping in with your tuppence worth because I think the the, un- was, the, re- the verdict, uh, I think the universal verdict is, it's uh, is it, that uh, it's like working in a torture chamber or something.
1: It <laughs> was worse than we could have imagined. Yeah. Um, so they started in the in the in the main. you know the 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 new binhof. Uh, the binhof is uh, is going to be renovated. So uh, all the all the offices and also the Tweede Kamer and uh, the cabinet as well and the Eerste Kamer. They all have to move out. For uh, they say five and a half years, but it will definitely uh, be much longer yeah. because you know all these uh, all these projects always. Um, these things always uh, drag on. Yeah. They always drag on forever. Um, So they uh, completely renovated uh, uh, an empty uh, uh, building in The Hague, which used to be the foreign office, and it is the most terrible building ever. What what was Um, it when he called
0: it again? It was... uh
1: uh, she called it the. Um, it, uh, it looks like as if uh, Antoni Gaudi uh, was born in Soviet Russia, something like that, and really looks like that. And they added a, um, you know, a casino front, a golden casino front to the yeah, building. A Trump um, Tower's
0: entrance, but somehow a Trump s- Tower s- entrance, s- uh, the, but that looked even cheaper than the actual Trump Tower entrance.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and then the journalists they went inside in the main entrance hall, and uh, of course they added these uh, 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 insanely long escalators because you can't have a yeah. Tweede Kamer building without insanely long escalators. Uh, and so they they were toured, and they, were, they had a guided tour through all the uh, new um, uh, commission rooms and the and the new main chamber of the Tweede Kamer, which is an exact copy of it. Um, but the commission rooms are. You know, n- n- no atmosphere whatsoever. <laughs> uh, the color scheme is only gray. they They yeah. used fifty shades of of Steph Block, basically. that w- that was they, they
0: just took Steph Block's wardrobe, didn't they? as their inspiration yeah. effectively.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they used all the colors they found <laughs> there which is only gray so it's I- extremely depressing and also because you know this is a a building from the 70s you ha- it's it's only concrete yeah. and um uh, uh inside the building you have these e- uh, extremely long hallways very narrow very uh very very yeah very tiny yeah. um and it's just very depressing they didn't do anything to to add any uh any any atmosphere any yeah it's just um, yeah, it, it uh it just
0: looks like a set it, yeah it looks like a set from a really grim 1970s uh movie uh, like a horror movie or something or like one flew over the cuckoo's Nest, or two thousand and one yeah you know, completely soulless uh yeah no, 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 no kind, of, kind of no no shadows on the wall you know that kind of lighting that doesn't doesn't yeah, doesn't, yeah. doesn't actually cast any
1: um it, 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 it give off any warmth at all no, and and it reminded me of this one time in my uh, when I was in high school when they uh, renovated the the chemistry laboratory in the in, in my school yeah. building, uh, which was very nice. You know, it's it's all white, it's all um, uh, grey, it's all clean. Um, but that's a perfect atmosphere for a chemistry laboratory, but not for yeah. uh, a parliament <laughs> building, in my opinion, or 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 to have it as an, as, a, as a nice working place. Yeah. And then the the journalists moved on because the Eerste Kamer is also moving and their offices are located somewhere else. They renovated um, uh, a former palace uh, in, I believe it was on the Lange Voorhout in The Hague, which used to be a palace of uh, uh, King William II, uh, which uh, isn't very, very large at all. I all I, 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 also thought that it was very nice to see that in Dutch terms this is a palace, mm-hmm. which is basically uh, not one terraced house but just two terraced houses yeah. joined together. That that was the size of it.
0: That counts as a palace.
1: That counted as a palace, but their um, uh, offices are much nicer. But they also have a. Uh, the, uh, they also renovated somewhere else a, a, a an old ministry building and turned that into a new senate chamber. And that one was even worse than uh, than uh, <laughs> than, the, than the Tweede Kamer building because. It is even more shades of grey, and no. uh, the current Senate uh, Senate uh, Chamber has these iconic green uh, seats, just like you have yeah. at the House of Commons. So they, I was going
0: to say the, the the actual Senate is actually quite a uh, appealing uh, building, it's, it, or this, it's got some some atmosphere.
1: Exactly, it's a very yeah. nice, very nice building. It's a 17th century uh, 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 building, so that's very nice. So they wanted to mimic or sort of give a nod to these these green benches, but they use a sort of grey greenish shade so it, again it was even more 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 gray added to the uh added to the uh, lifeless atmosphere so yeah um yeah I, I feel really sorry for everyone who has to work there for the next uh, well officially five and a half years but it will definitely yeah. be much longer
0: exactly yeah they, they, they'll feel like i think they're, like, like they're on some kind of uh, interstellar mission you know they, they've yeah. been cast out on some some, some 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 space station orbiting the earth there's, yeah. there's no, no sense of natural daylight no no all. no. and in the commission <laughs> rooms
1: also doesn't don't have any any daylight uh, uh, at all it's all yeah. Um, yeah so i feel really sorry for them
0: yeah so so that's so. so so that was one disaster, <laughs> um, another disaster that uh, uh, befell uh, both our nations at uh, the, the last weekend uh, was, of course, uh, Eurovision.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, Which, how uh, did you did you did you manage to survive it? I
0: did, just so I managed to survive. I was uh, away um, with my Dutch family in Friesland because um, my eldest son uh, just turned 18. So we, we, we went away for the weekend for his birthday and, of course, it clashed with Eurovision. Yeah. Um, and there was a nice circularity to this. And, 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 uh, the, the, yeah, and everyone who went insisted that we watched Eurovision as I spent four hours sitting in a barn in Friesland uh, <laughs> watching uh, this uh, yeah, absolute just trash fest, uh, effectively. Yeah. Um, but at least I was in company. Yeah, um, and uh, but there was a nice circularity to it because uh, did, um, my son was born on the Eurovision weekend, and it was actually the Eurovision night, I think, and it was the first time that uh, the UK received null points at a Eurovision. Hmm. It was an absolute, yeah, it caused an absolute uh, outrage and sensation uh, and- in Britain at the time. I can't remember what we'd fallen out with the rest of Europe about that time, but there, there must have been something. Um, it was t- 2003 was the year obviously um, and what but, happened yeah, this year <laughs> a, this year of course yes something had happened I was scratching my head trying to think what it was that uh, meant that you know uh, the UK and the rest in mainland Europe were on bad, weren't really on speaking terms but in any event uh, the UK entry which I thought was by no means the worst song no um, not at and I think almost everyone who watched it uh, had that feeling uh, got zero points from the juries and of course zero points as well from the public yeah. under this weird hybrid voting system that we have <laughs> so once again, exactly eighteen years after my son was born to the to the sound to the ringing sound of <laughs> Nul Point, uh, it happened again. So just as, he became, just as he crossed the threshold into adulthood. Yeah, yeah so. this time they
1: got a, a double <laughs> zero prom because uh, yeah. you know uh, they they yeah. started with giving the points of the of the of the juries, and yeah. the UK obviously got zero zero points from them, and uh, then they they started to give the um, uh, the the votes from Europe. And um, uh, the UK didn't get any any votes whatsoever, no, any points. Not well, a single pro- one. Maybe they got some votes. I don't votes. I don't know. But they didn't get any points. And yeah. uh, uh, because we, we, they started, we, we got, with, they started with a few
0: votes. Got a few votes from Willem Engel. Yeah,
1: at <laughs> the film Camera elections. That's how <laughs> exactly. <bad it> was. <laughs> yeah. And the and the and the dramatic thing was also they started with the one who was lowest on the on the on the on the on the ranking of the jury. Um, yeah. So it, yeah, it was So it was. Um, uh, uh, they started by uh humiliating the United Kingdom with giving them again <laughs> zero points and yeah. what, as you said it was it was n- not nearly the worst uh, uh performance um, there was in the whole contest i think so i i i would have uh, I would have forgiven you uh, a point if it was up to me at least so- one.
0: Well, at least we got a point from somewhere. Got to take all the points we have, uh, but of course, uh, there, I mean, for, for four countries I think got uh, got zero points from from the public, including the um, Netherlands. One of which was the Netherlands. Yeah. Yes, so uh, if you, you, have to, you didn't really do much better. You managed to pick up, I think, 10, 11 points from the juries. Oh, oh, and it, and,
1: and and the the real atrocity here is that Germany got three points because their song <laughs> and their performance just didn't their song make was dreaded, any it was sense. Absolutely
0: appalling. Yeah, they, was, they deserve minus points. It was, you know, the Tweede
1: camera kamer is awful because they did didn't have any colors but but the german uh, performance was yeah. awful because they basically used too many colors so yeah they you can the also colors. they yeah. used all the colors uh <laughs> yeah it was definitely the worst thing the germans ever did to rotterdam um but they managed <laughs> to get three points from austria and uh which uh you know uh, is also a uh a reminder of uh yeah. <laughs> the but historical by, by only uh,
0: three points from yeah. austria. I mean, uh, so. Yeah, it's it quite restrained. And, uh, yeah,
1: but there's, you know, from, we know Switzerland. We know how much Austria likes failed artists. So yeah, it's uh, it is uh, <laughs> understandable <laughs> that they gave them three points. Um, so yeah, but uh, Germany, I think Germany didn't deserve that three points. I, I would have seen it ru- rather the other way around. At least the United Kingdom uh, to have three points and uh, Germany zero. Yeah,
0: no, even three points wasn't uh, really that good. Enough. Yeah, and of course, uh, yeah, Eurovision was also um, the focus of uh, our opeth of the week. Uh, yeah, being as uh, since uh, it took place in Rotterdam.
1: Yeah, finally we have some Eurovision uh, op because uh, <laughs> we didn't have any actually in the past months and the past weeks. Um, but yeah, Eurovision would not be complete without major op But luckily Italy was there to provide it for us. And uh, yeah, as we know, Rotterdam hosted the grand final of the uh, musical monstrosity called Eurovision. And after the acts from 26 countries, uh, including countries we didn't even know existed, mm-hmm. uh, did their best to Countries,
0: I suspect, actually don't exist. I mean, what, what's North Macedonia?
1: It's the it's the <laughs> former former Yugoslavian Republic of Macedonia. North Macedonia. Yeah. That's how they call them. Yeah, um, it
0: just had to had to call itself North Macedonia because uh, Greece disputed the name Macedonia.
1: Yeah, I think all sorts of Balkan countries disputed their names, including them. So yeah. I don't know, but North Macedonia, <laughs> they they finally have a name, so uh, 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 they must be happy now. Um, but yeah, they uh, they uh, all these uh, countries did their best to. Damage uh, the hearing of everyone on the continent. And yeah, it was time to, uh, for, uh, for everyone uh, for Europe to vote and determine who was the least terrible performer of the evening. And right after the voting lines closed, we got a shot of the green room, uh, and we saw a member of the Italian rock band Manaskin, uh, and he could be seen in the background bending forward over the table and rapidly moving his head from left to right. And uh, someone tweeted a video of the incident, wondering if the Italian was snorting cocaine. The video <laughs> (laughs) went absolutely viral and a lot of people assumed that he was in fact taking a line of cocaine, even though the table was obstructed by a bowl of iced Heineken beer, so we couldn't really see what yeah, it's a good product placement there. Exactly. So we couldn't really see what was happening there. Um, a few moments later, the Italian band uh, won the contest, and uh, in the press conference immediately after the live show, the uh, guitarist was confronted with the accusations. He uh, categorically denied them, saying that he doesn't do drugs and that he uh, had merely broken a glass and was picking up the pieces. Um, <laughs> journalists uh, naturally rushed to the Italian table and indeed saw pieces of shattered glass under it. So that made it made his explanation uh, plausible, and the next day the Italian guitarist took a drug test which indeed turned out to be negative, so that, uh, that cleared uh, Thomas uh, Raggi from all the allegations.
0: Yeah, which I was disappointed by because I was looking forward to him uh, sending the bill for the for the cocaine to to vodka hookstar
1: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, yeah. It's. Um, it was. It. It looked a little bit weird, but you know, you couldn't see what was going on on the table. No, and, and they,
0: they, they clearly kind of staged it, but it just underlined for me how how far divorced Eurovision is from real music, because the idea of a rock band, firstly, <laughs> denying that they were taking drugs. <laughs> yeah. Secondly, that the, the fans of this band were demanding that they uh, were outraged that they were taking drugs and demand investigation. And yeah. thirdly, it turned out they actually weren't taking drugs. No. I mean, none of that has got anything to do with real rock music, surely.
1: No, 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 I mean. of course not. Yeah, yeah. And it was just weird to wake up in a Europe where Italy actually wins something, right? So yeah, it's, it just doesn't yeah. make any sense.
0: Everything was just, uh, yeah, the, the whole world was uh, turned upside down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah and and surely now Brussels will have to investigate how Italy got all these points and and, and whether they were uh, whether they were using them uh, you know uh, expediently.
1: Yeah and, and now I come to think of it there was actually a little bit more opf because a lot of people who voted uh, via SMS uh, got their um confirmation uh in the middle of the night saying that they were too late oh. to vote even though they were in time. So did, there might did, yeah. be some shady... Did the SMS uh, say thank you
0: for voting for Hugo de Jong? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that would have been even more funny, yeah. No, uh, it, it said no, you, were, you are too late uh, for voting. The lines are closed, even though they, they voted in time. So, yeah, there it might be uh, something shady going on there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, dodgy voting at Eurovision. Who'd have thought it yeah. would ever come to this? With all that out of the way, uh, we turn to this week's news. And uh, this week, oil giant Shell is told to clean up its act. Hopes rise that the coronavirus outbreak is clearing up and Amsterdam steps up efforts to clear out tourists from its
1: coffee shops. Anglo-Dutch oil giant Shell must do more to fight climate change and reduce its carbon dioxide emissions more quickly than planned, judges in The Hague said on Wednesday. Shell must do its part to contribute to the fight against dangerous climate change, the court said. The oil company is required to reduce the carbon dioxide emitted by the Shell Group and its customers by 45 percent by the end of 2030, compared with the level in 2019. Shell's current goal is to reduce CO2 emissions with 20 percent in 2030 and 45 percent in 2035. Um, Milieu Fancy, that's the Dutch brands of Friends of the Earth, led the case against the The Hague-headquartered multinational, which was supported by other environmental groups and some 17,000 ordinary citizens. The Environmental Group argued that Shell is violating Dutch liability law by emitting two times as much carbon dioxide as the Netherlands as a whole. Shell argued that these emissions do not come from its headquarters but its subsidiaries in some 80 different countries around the world and any complaint must be taken up with them directly milieu Defense director Donald Pols told reporters before hearing started in December 2020 that the lawsuit was unique. He claimed that if the environmentalists were successful, this would be the first court to order a private company to change its business model to reduce its carbon footprint. Shell had argued that it cannot be held liable in the Netherlands for events that take place worldwide. Following a uh, 2019 Dutch Supreme Court ruling known as the Urhenda decision, the Dutch government was ordered to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 20. 25% of 1990 levels by the end of 2020. That ruling found that the Dutch government was required to meet the conditions of international treaties including the Paris Climate Agreement, and in the present case, Shell argued that because it isn't a party to such treaties, as they are between nations, it isn't obliged to meet their targets. But the court said private companies, too, have a responsibility to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the court also ruled that Shell must take action to reduce its footprint immediately and is not allowed to wait after an appeal.
0: Yeah, so this is a real landmark judgment in a lot of ways, isn't it? Because uh, Shell's, uh, uh, Shell's defense was that because they're a private company, they couldn't be bound by government decisions. And the court has, uh, has kind of struck that out. But it also said, I think, that even if the governments hadn't agreed the Paris uh, Paris Agreement, Shell would still have an obligation to reduce climate change, because a lot of the arguments that were used successfully by uh, Milieu defensi uh, were human rights arguments, yeah. saying that uh, climate change was a threat to human rights and... Uh, the stability of the
1: uh, of society and democracy. Yeah, and it mirrors, uh, mirrors the arguments that were made by Urgenda in their case against the yeah. Dutch state. They also said that uh, because of human rights the, the, the Dutch government has an obligation to uh, to do more to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. But that was of course against the state and this is against the private uh, company basically and yeah. they too now have to reduce their carbon dioxide because of these human rights. And uh, there were also a lot of people who said yeah isn't this just stretching the definition of, of of human rights a little bit too far because i believe the the court uh, mentioned the right of um of of a family and have a uh, stable yeah. life for example uh, which is part of the european convention on human rights um yeah it, does that really apply to shell's uh, uh um uh, activities worldwide yeah it seems to me a little bit far-stretched and um but the court uh, uh, decided otherwise and um yeah it will definitely have a consequence for uh, other uh, companies in the world in the netherlands but also in the world um b- b- because this is the first time that uh, that a company is uh, is held uh, accountable um, in such a way
0: yeah, exactly. And of course, it doesn't just apply to Shell in the Netherlands, but also to its, I think, 1,100 subsidiaries around the world. So yeah. this is going to have consequences uh, for Shell and for, for, for everyone living in those countries, which is just, it's just about everybody, basically. And, yeah. and, and I can't, can't think there's a country in the world where Shell doesn't operate to some degree. Um, and of course, so this will be watched not just by climate change activists, uh, but also by global corporations, because potentially these rules uh, will now uh, have to apply to them as well.
1: Yeah, even though um, the 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 stocks of Shell, the price of the stocks didn't drop anything or did basically yeah. didn't do anything. So uh, shareholders aren't that worried about uh, this recent <laughs> development, It seems no, no, which is interesting. Yeah, um. and also the Shell says we, we we are we are we are doing everything we can uh, to to uh, reduce our carbon dioxide uh, footprint, um, uh, and that's true because you know their plan was in to have uh, a reduction in twenty thirty by. 20% and 45% yeah. in 2035. And now the court says no. You have to uh, uh, you have to reach this 45% reduction not in 2035 as you're planning, but in 2030. So basically, the court said uh, they agree with the way the direction the company was going. They just said you really need to speed it up.
0: Yeah, but they said you had to meet basically the same targets that the governments are set in yeah. the Paris Accords. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, but 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 Shell is, uh, is appealing this decision, uh, or appealing against naturally, this decision as well. Yeah. So naturally, so so it's not quite the Supreme Court will now have to make a final judgment. But in the meantime, they still have to uh, uh, to, uh, to find ways to abide by these targets. And I mean, it's interesting that the, the, the Shell agreed with um, uh, with milieu defensie uh, that climate change was a threat, and they also agreed on the definition of climate change. I think was the, the the Earth warming up by one and a half degrees. Uh, by the end of the century, but they didn't, they disputed that they actually had any obligation or that, 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 that they had a greater obligation to, 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 to actually to, to reduce climate change. Museums, theatres and cinemas are expected to reopen next weekend, four days ahead of schedule, as the government moves to stage three of its plan to lift the coronavirus restrictions. Restaurants will also be able to serve up to 30 customers indoors. And bars are set to open until 10pm after Justice Minister and undercover Bond villain <laughs> Fred Krupperhaus said he didn't want to distinguish between wet and dry catering <laughs> sir, establishments.
1: Whatever that may- might mean, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah no, No. Th- yeah, no uh, wet establishments where they serve alcohol, no hmm. dry ones. Is where they, they oh, don't okay. just, uh, 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 And you'll be able to have four visitors at your home instead of two, so very small circle parties are back on, everybody. Oh no. <laughs> All the changes will be confirmed at a press conference on Friday afternoon following the ministerial meeting.
1: Does that mean we have uh, live tweeting again?
0: I fear it does. Yes, that's that's the only positive
1: of these uh, positive thing about these uh, press conferences. Press conferences. Yeah, Um, but this does uh, this must mean that the virus numbers are going down then.
0: It does, and uh, and they are, uh, but, but, uh, and, and actually at uh, uh, quite a decent rate. In the last 15 days, the average number of cases over a week has halved from 6,700 to 3,350, which is more or less uh, how it was going a year ago uh, when we drove infections right down, although we were doing less testing, so we weren't aware of uh, how widely the virus has spread. But also the hospitals uh, are really clearing out now, which is good news. Huh. Uh, in the last week, the number of patients has come down from 1,900 to just above 1,500. And there are now 540 patients in intensive care compared to 620. And they've actually scaled back the number of intensive care beds now, back from they did uh, yeah. add an extra 200 intensive care beds, uh, which, of course, they didn't just uh, create out of nothing. They had to uh, close regular uh, operating rooms to make create new intensive care beds, which, of course, means that operations... Um, sometimes quite uh, urgent operations for things like cancer had to be postponed so that's good news that they now have the capacity again to do those r- operations yeah. and the government has said it wants to catch up on the backlog by the end of the year but of course that means uh, that um, yeah uh, people working in hospitals uh, are up for another six months of uh, uh, hard pretty road. hard grinding yeah. work to, 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 to catch up the difference uh, because we let the pandemic uh, run run rampant basically, yeah. unfortunately uh, the positive test rate, which was the last measure to stop climbing uh, about a week and a half ago, is also now moving downwards, which is really good news. It was uh, nearly 13% uh, at the beginning of uh, well, uh, a week and a half ago, and it's now down to 9.6%. Uh, These are still very high numbers, uh, certainly compared with the rest of Europe, but they are heading in the right direction. And vaccination is also speeding up. So on Wednesday, people born in 1972 and 73 became eligible for their first jab. So we're into people under 50 now. And Mm -hmm. more than a million doses are scheduled for this week. Um, And uh, I'm hoping that, uh, yeah, this being Friday, that uh, uh, by the end of this week, uh, people born in 1974 will be able to uh, sign up for a jab, uh, because that's me. I
1: think think. they will skip that year.
0: they probably will yeah Yeah. knowing my luck they'll probably just say yeah sorry (laughs) we need to catch up yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you're You're just gonna have to get corona
1: (laughs) we're gonna sacrifice your your birthday for for good immunity the hard way (laughs) exactly (laughs) Um, and there is lots of news about field labs this week as well because I heard they are going very well
0: Uh, Well, yes, you heard that from field labs, probably. Because (laughs) because, uh, this week, the organisers of the most unconvincing scientific experiments since Uri Geller hung up his spoons got to mark their own homework. And they declared Uh, their dabbling in viral infection to be a roaring success. The joint project between three ministries and the events industry put on 24 events with 60,000 people in attendance, all of whom had to test negative for coronavirus beforehand. They were also supposed to take a second test afterwards, which, to be fair, about 80% of people did. So Hmm. that's actually not too bad. The showpiece, of course, was the aforementioned Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam, which at the time boasted one of the highest infection levels in Europe. So, in a perverse way, probably a good place to do an experiment on viral infection.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because you're pretty
0: pretty much guaranteed to get some cases. And indeed, of course, a couple of the acts, including Iceland and Duncan Lawrence, uh, duly, Laurence. caught the virus.
1: Yeah. yeah. Even though there are some doubts about the if uh, Duncan Lawrence actually had uh, coronavirus, oh, was
0: he just trying to? He's just making an excuse.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the latest rumor, yeah. But, uh, ah, okay.
0: I was unaware of that. Uh, oddly, given that the aim of the stunt, sorry, sorry, the epidemiological field study, was to see <laughs> if people could attend mass events without being infected, field labs said they wouldn't be publishing how many people had tested positive because it wasn't relevant. But after a huge furore, they backed down, and the number of infections detected at Eurovision will be made public after all.
1: Yeah, that just doesn't make any sense to say that that, that's irrelevant. I mean, that's the whole point of your goddamn experience. Um, Exactly. So uh, did they say it was safe to go ahead with summer festivals while the virus is flying around? Uh not quite. Uh, what they said was
0: it'd be safe to stage events with capacity audiences once a coronavirus threat level is down to zorkalik or Concerning, which is level two on the government's four step scale. You have a uh, the map of the twenty five regions um on the um uh on, on the Corona dashboard, all of which are moment well, twenty three at the moment are coloured dark red because they're at level four. Uh, two regions move down to level three this week. Uh, levels determined by the number of positive tests and the number of uh, people in hospital um, and is likely in the, in the next two weeks because they revise the, um, uh, the status of each region every two weeks. It's likely in the two weeks uh, that the majority of regions will come down to level three and some might even get down to level two. Um, it, Field Lab's recommendation is that uh, anywhere on level 4 shouldn't have more than 50% capacity and uh, at level 3 shouldn't have more than 75% uh, uh, of uh, the, the maximum number of people in your venue and visitors should be made to take a coronavirus test before entering, uh, if mm-hmm. you're on level two, then people don't need to test. They say.
1: Okay, but uh, yeah, supposedly we all uh, should be vaccinated uh, before the start of the festival season, so uh, yeah. we 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 actually uh, shouldn't have anything to worry about. No, that's what Hugo de Jonge said. So yeah. uh, and and I Must I'd be trust true. Him.
0: Yeah, yeah, it must be true.
1: Yeah. I uh, I spotted Hugo de Jonge on the highway uh, the other day. Did you? Yeah, it was on Saturday. I was uh, driving from Delft to uh, to Rosendale, so it was at the A15. Uh, towards Rotterdam and all of a sudden I saw this uh, uh, obscenely large BMW <laughs> speeding uh, uh, past me uh, uh, obviously breaking the speed limit followed by yes. a, uh, a black Audi uh, and uh, I was uh, looking at the uh, license plate and I just googled um, uh, um, uh, Hugo de Jonge <laughs> uh, uh, car and I saw that the license plate um, uh, matched so um, <clears throat> I think he was on his way to, uh, to, uh, to the uh, Eurovision song contest because oh, he was invited yeah. there and he was, he was going to yeah,
0: of course. Yeah, we were we, we, we dazzled by his shoes as he drove past. That would have, he, uh, given he, he, he or, was, or was or given hair special
1: hair Eurovision yeah. shoes which would be uh, <laughs> auctioned afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want to know the details no. about this, but uh, it, no. it all seems very disgusting.
0: That sounds appalling. My Dutch political celebrity gossip is I bumped into Jesse Claver uh, in my local Yumbo. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, so Jesse Klaas is a Jumbo guy. Yeah, and uh, no, I, I, oh. I saw him. Literally, I was just walking out, and he was walking in and putting his mask on, and I thought, yeah, there, there's clearly a, a man of uh, taste and distinction that he goes <laughs> shopping at Jumbo. So, so, I don't know, was so, he wearing
1: cool. his uh, Eicheltjes uh, pajamas or not?
0: No, he wasn't. No, I can't remember what he was uh, wearing. I think he's uh, it was a Friday afternoon, so uh, probably he probably just... was in uh, his casual clothes. Cl- he was in his casual clothes, yeah. Mm. He'd uh, clocked off early from the, um, from the Binnenhof.
1: Well, it, uh, it doesn't make me more likely to vote for him now. I know that he shops at. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: Green cool Links has lost your vote.
1: Yeah, Mark Rutte just uh, shops at uh, uh, Albert Heijn, I know. Yes. So Mark Rutte is the real man of taste.
0: It's where he buys his toilet paper.
1: <laughs> He's <laughs> enormous quantities, yeah. <laughs> A nice transition to uh, to the real politics news. Uh mm. <laughs> Informateur Mariette Hamer resumed the formation talks this week. Uh, On Wednesday, she invited seven party leaders to the Stadthouders Kamer to talk about the uh, politically safe topic of the recovery of the Netherlands after Corona. And naturally, the leaders of uh, VVD, D66 and CDA, these are of course Mark Rutte, Sigrid Kaag and Wopke Hoekstra respectively were there. Um, But also Liliane Ploumen and Jesse Klaver, the leaders of the two left-wing parties, PvdA and GroenLinks were invited. Um, And they are becoming more and more likely every week ...to join the coalition. Um, yeah, did, did Jesse
0: Klava have a Jumbo shopping bag? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, 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 I sh- I com- I'm I going to look for that uh, <laughs> in the future now, now I know that he, that he shops there. Um, a bit more surprising, however, was SP leader Liliane Marijnissen... ...and Nuni leader Gert-Jan Segers. Um, they were also invited. Uh, but they both have ruled out joining a coalition headed by Mark Rutte... Uh, ...even though Segers had uh, softened his standpoint a little bit in the past weeks. But Marijnissen has always said this firmly... And she repeated this after the meeting on Wednesday. Uh, Rutte came out and told journalists afterwards they had promised each other not to talk about what was said in the meeting. And Hoekstra said it was time to speed things up. Uh, yeah, basically they're all repeating uh, what we all feel. Yeah, we need some speed. Ploemen um, yes. and Klaver again stated that they will only negotiate on forming a new coalition together. Something that the uh, VVD and CDA are not too keen about. Uh, they don't feel like joining a coalition with two left-wing parties, while only one of them is uh, mathematically required for a majority. Um, Hamer will also talk again uh, with the other remaining parties. She divided them into more or less like-minded groups and invited them over to the Stadhouderskamer. But Geert Wilders, uh, the PVV leader, declined the invitation. He said that he already told her everything he wanted to say. And interestingly...
0: Did you just write down the words Minder Marokkanen on a piece of paper and walk away?
1: <laughs> yeah. Probably, I don't know. Or, or he just gave her uh, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, single uh, paper plan for the, for the coming four mm-hmm. years. Um, interestingly enough, Hamer put wibben van Haga recently separated from Forum for Democracy with three other MPs, uh, but promised to stick to FDA's party manifesto in a different group than Cherry Baudet. So uh, mm. yeah, apparently they don't uh, agree uh, uh, too much on uh, how the coalition should go forward.
0: Yeah. Or alternatively, it means the Day's manifesto gets uh, c- uh, gets two shots.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. B- could be. Could be. I mean, mm. it just doesn't make sense because Wiebom van Haga he he split spl- split from Forum for Democratie and he said, yeah, the party manifesto will remain leading. We will we will we will keep carrying it out and we will keep yeah. um, uh, uh, following whatever whatever it said. But why do you need to split off from someone who wrote the party manifesto if if that person is still uh, following it. So it, it, yeah. it either he is saying, I think he is saying, I am the real form for democracy uh, now. I follow yeah. uh, 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 w- whatever we uh, plan. Yeah,
0: if you, if you want to follow the true owl of Minerva, then uh, follow me. Yeah, exactly. So, so Yeah, yeah. So. yeah but the, the one that won't take you into, like, uh, anti-Semitic dark corridors.
1: Exactly, yeah. But they yeah. insist they are still friends, so, uh, yeah.
0: Oh, well. That's nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the theory I saw on this is that um, uh, 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 this week is that uh, um, Liliana Plumman and uh, Jesse Claver are, are, are sticking together at the moment. But ultimately, they will. One of them will drop out um, because, uh, as you say, the other parties say we don't need uh, both of them to make the numbers. We don't want a five-party coalition. Um, and uh, the thing that the feeling seems to be there's more likely to be Plumman because Claver is more. Uh, the, the PeFidr are more relaxed about staying in opposition, and also, but on the other hand, the oh, so day,
1: you mean Plume is more likely to drop out at the Plume end is of the race? more likely to drop mm, out, leaving yeah, cloud yeah. behind.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah,
1: that, that that could be that would be a sensible plan for them to to use their collective number of of seats, which still is. Quite a relatively low amount uh, as leverage in the negotiations, and then maybe yeah. score together more points uh, uh, than they would uh, otherwise do um, uh, uh, alone. So yeah, that that would be a sensible plan yeah. for them.
0: Yeah, so, so you could end up with almost uh, yeah the 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 kind of something like, a, not quite a Khadog construction, but uh, you know, um, PFDR will get there, um, because the way they constructed, set up the talks this time, they, they discuss the substance before they discuss the coalition numbers, that actually a lot of the PFDR's policies will get into the coalition agreement, yeah. but they won't actually have any obligation to carry them out.
1: Yeah, that would but be a very still smart probably, strategy for them. Yeah.
0: yeah, it would be a smart strategy, I guess. Uh, so you end up with a four-party coalition, um, but also with a kind of, you know, um, uh, a lot of implicit support from Labour. So you did a kind of string of things your majority. But of course the dilemma for Rutte and also probably for Hookstra as well, given that CDR now look almost increasingly likely to be in the coalition, is that their voters aren't that fond of hoon links. So
1: Yeah, that's right. Um,
0: going into coalition hoon links is a bit more a bit more of a risky strategy for them, um, in that sense.
1: Yeah, and support from uh, from uh, Labour would also mean that um, uh, you know um, Labour is not required for a majority in the Tweede Kamer, but you know it will always help in the Eerste Kamer to have yeah. uh, a, a sort of gedoogconstructie, sort of uh, mm-hmm. support from an opposition party. Um, so yeah, that it uh, could also be handy for for the rest of the coalition, indeed. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, also, reports about a clash between Rutte and Kaag uh, during a cabinet meeting, which doesn't bode well for the coal- uh, smooth uh, transition to the new coalition.
1: Yes, this was a report from the Telegraaf newspaper. They wrote that there was an intense argument between uh, Rutte and Kaag in the Ministerial Council last Friday on the topic of the Dutch response uh, to the recent conflict in uh, Gaza. Uh, according to the newspaper, she, uh, Kaag wanted to balance the Dutch standpoint and add some nuance, as uh, she said it. Uh, she found the Foreign Affairs Minister Steph Bloch's response too one-sided. But Rutte, on the other hand, found uh, Kaag's standpoint too pro-Palestine. And this led to an extraordinarily intense debate, or clash actually, as the Mm. newspaper uh, described it. And Kaag supposedly left the room in anger. Uh, Rutte apologized later, but according to uh, the Telegraph, it left other ministers wondering how on earth these two uh, could lead a coalition together.
0: Yeah so, so that's a potential uh, yeah. uh, well, relationship to watch I guess as the uh, yeah, as we move forward into the next cabinet.
1: Yeah and it's also interesting to wonder who who leaked this news because you know the yeah. uh, ministerial council is, is done in secret and who who is to, who benefits from uh, from uh, uh, the leakage of this news I wonder.
0: Yeah yes interesting. Um, and then of course uh, we've uh, had some uh, concern this week about uh, politicians workload.
1: Yes, uh, we all know, of course, about uh, CDA MP Pieter Omtzigt, uh, who is currently at home uh, for months now, recovering from exhaustion, from overwork. Uh, Omtzigt said on Tuesday he will take a sick leave for at least four months, meaning that he will not be available as Wopke Hoekstra's second hand in the possible coalition negotiations. Uh, And he was also joined by Economic Affairs Minister Bas van het Woud, uh, who uh, also said this week he is suffering from a burnout and will stay at home for three months. Um, This led to uh, also led to a little cabinet reshuffling. Foreign Affairs Minister Stef Bloch will temporarily take over the Economic Affairs Ministry, while VVD MP Dylan Yesilgoos will become his second Deputy Minister. Sigrid Kaag, who is now uh, Foreign Trade Minister, um, will take over the entire Foreign Office. Uh, And this isn't the first time uh, a minister has suffered from a burnout. Uh, Remember at the start of the Corona crisis, Deputy Health Minister Bruno Bruins collapsed in Parliament during a debate. Uh, He was uh, over Overwork from handling the pandemic, after which Hugo de Jonge took over. And in recent years, many other MPs also had to step down due to overwork. Uh, and Tweede Kamer chair Vera Bergkamp uh, now uh, wants to talk to uh, Prime Minister Mark Rutte about what can be done to reduce the workload for politicians to prevent them from getting burnouts. The yeah. uh, the the there is it's a real catch twenty two here because uh, you know uh, being an MP is naturally not a nine to five job you always have to work late uh, but yeah. there are so many debates uh, that go on uh, to the middle of the night and all the MPs who do not participate in them have to stay in the Tweede Kamer building because there there can always be a vote and yeah. uh, uh, they need to they need to come into action. Um, also, um, um, the the political landscape has been shattered so much in recent years that um, uh, politicians, MPs, they have so much more dossiers to uh, to uh, uh, to keep track of and to participate sure. in debates. While, um, for example, when the CDR had forty seats, they had forty people where which they could divide the work. Uh, 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 in, between and now they only have 12 Mm. seats so uh and if you have 12 ministries then that means that every mp has one ministry to follow Uh, but if you have even less seats than that and sometimes an mp has to uh has to follow two ministries for example and that is simply speaking a lot of work, and yeah. um, that could just mean that uh, uh, you can uh, you can uh, you can you can get a burnout because the problem with that is that sometimes, uh, very often, you don't know that you have a burnout until it's f- uh, already too late, right? So. Yeah. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, uh, the problem is also MPs have to come into action to show their voters that they are uh, 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 doing their job and that they are uh, fighting for their interest. And that also yeah. means that uh, they have to uh, 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 put motions, to, um, uh, write motions and put them to the vote. Um, but that also means that they have to vote for 150 motions, for example, uh, uh, as they had to on, on Tuesday. Um, yeah. So it's a real catch-22 on the one hand you don't want them to get overworked but on the other hand they have to because they are politicians and they have to really uh, 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 work hard to stand out uh, between the rest
0: yeah I think that's the thing and it's um, it's a fact uh, I think that they have to present now on so many different fronts because as you say uh, there are more parties now because there's fragmentation that means that um, uh, MPs and opposition MPs especially for the smaller parties have to take on several different portfolios and they've got to juggle several balls at once but also they've got to be present in so many arenas now they're not just in uh, Kama, but they have to go on to, there are so many chat shows to go and sit on they have to be on Twitter they have yeah. to be on all kinds of social media channels and there's much more opportunity for people to interact directly with politicians which is good for democracy in one sense but on the other hand it just adds to their workload and adds to the sense they have to be you know that they have to have to be doing three or four tasks at the same time and that I think is what really increases your risk of burnout that you can never focus on just getting one job complete your work is never done and you never get to switch off at the end of the day.
1: And, uh, yeah, also, the uh, so there are calls for um, uh, uh, giving MPs more staff members because, uh, on average, they have only two staff members for every MP, which is just uh, 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 also relatively, compared to the rest of Europe, very low amount. And we also have um, a, a, a very small amount of seats in Parliament compared to other countries. Uh, I believe Denmark, for example, which is a lot smaller than the Netherlands, has uh, 175 seats or something thing yeah. so uh, there are also calls to uh, to increase the number of seats in parliament to just uh, 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 you know uh, get the workload um, uh, reduce the workload in that sense but uh, for that you need a a change of the constitution which means that it has to uh, you need two readings in two different parliaments so yeah it can only be done uh, uh, after 8 years at least um, yeah. so um, yeah i think uh, they, I they should they just that's that's not an immediate solution either. So yeah, I think they should just really allocate more money to to hire more staff members. That would uh, yeah. already reduce a lot of these. Um the, the workload I think
0: yeah but which politi- which political party is going to dare to propose spending more money on uh, you know the political st- uh, infrastructure y-
1: yeah well they they are talking That's about uh, they have been talking about the changing the administrative culture for the for the past uh, 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 months now and I think mm-hmm. that uh, also includes uh, allowing mps to do their work better and that means uh having more more uh uh, more supporting staff members so yeah i uh, i think uh, a lot of people will understand that uh, that uh, that that an increase in uh, in staff is uh, is required and they have this this huge building they are going to so they really need to fill these uh, these rooms that's true
0: yeah because otherwise they'll just look really empty and uh, and and (laughs) and and depressing and and, and, and dismal and depressing yeah (laughs) Uh, exactly It's that time again when we take a minute to say thank you to our patrons, whose generous contributions help to keep this podcast running. If you appreciate our efforts to keep you up to date on the latest cabinet reshuffles, questionable field lab results, or the number of plants on Molly's Green Roof, (laughs) why not sponsor us on Patreon? It costs as little as one euro a month, and you'll get a free shout-out on the next show, as well as a chance to ask us a question about life in the Netherlands. This week we say hello and welcome to uh, one new patron, Alan Edwins, so thank you very much indeed, Alan. If you'd like to join our select band of socially distancing patrons, look on to www.patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. Caretaker Prime Minister Mark Rutter joined the chorus of condemnation against Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko after a Ryanair plane was forced to divert to Minsk. Journalist Roman Protasevich and his Russian girlfriend Sofia Sapega were taken off the plane and arrested after it was intercepted on its way from Athens to the Lithuanian capital of Vilnius. He later appeared in a video where he confessed to organising mass riots in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, but his supporters said the film was made under duress. The plane landed under a military escort after air traffic controllers told the pilots there was a bomb on board. That's been dismissed by European Union leaders as a cover story, but Lukashenko insisted in a fiery press conference that the threat was genuine. Ritter called the diversion of a plane flying between two EU nations an unacceptable and unprecedented event. Other leaders uh, were more forceful, they described it as state terror or piracy. Belarus state airline, Belavia has been banned from landing in the EU and further sanctions have been considered on Belarus state officials and companies to apply economic pressure. European airlines have also been urged to avoid flying over Belarusian airspace.
1: Yeah, I saw a headline saying um, uh, uh, Rutte is really fed up with uh, uh, Belarus, and I initially thought it was about uh, um, a Eurovision song contest, yeah. but uh, <laughs> Belarus didn't participate. I think. Um, no, well,
0: they true they because their song was too political. Yeah, exactly. Really
1: political, yeah. They were they were um, disqualified. Um, yeah, initially the the anger was was directed at Ryanair for uh, you know landing at uh, at Minsk airport, but what mm. do you do if you are if you're a pilot and you're flying over someone's air you <laughs> Uh, in someone's airspace, then you're just uh, uh, obliged to follow the directions uh, you are given, and uh, especially when when there is an F-16 um, uh, flying next to you uh, or giving you these orders, then there's nothing else you can do. You don't really have any choice, do you?
0: No. I don't think anyone could blame the pilots for taking the decision to land when they were told there was a bomb threat. You've got to um, go with the information you're given, how, even if it turns out later to be false, uh, and uh, take the safe option. I think Ryan ever criticised not just for that, but also for the, the statements they made straight after the. Because they didn't mention that, yeah, that's um, right. uh, that Potsevich and uh, several other members of his of his party have been detained on the ground. They just said that the plane had were carried on towards Vilnius. Mm. They didn't mention the actual motive for it. So yeah, I think Ryanair uh, deservedly came in for criticism for that. They kind of you know covertly participated yeah did it, um, participated in the in the cover up of this arrest.
1: Yeah yeah. So uh, what's the position of the Dutch airline KLM?
0: Well, initially they said they were going to keep flying over Belarus uh, because they consulted the government and carried out a risk assessment. Um, but uh, then Margarita intervened and said uh, in, uh, quite clearly that it, it uh, came out in support of the European sanctions and the European guide, uh, guidance to companies. And uh, so KLM then changed their mind and said that they, they, they will not use Belarusian airspace.
1: Hmm. Okay. Well. Because
0: several European airlines now have been banned from landing in Moscow because, uh, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin is, a, uh, is is a supporter of uh, Lukashenko, and uh, so he's showing solidarity with Belarus by um, yeah by, by by blocking European airlines.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you now check flight radar twenty four, then uh, you you can only see one gap in Europe, and that is uh, yeah. exactly where uh, above Belarus, indeed. Yeah. Um, and what have other Dutch politicians said?
0: Yeah, the uh, foreign affairs spokesman uh, Schwarzschutzmann said the response by the EU was the fastest and most stringent package of measures he could remember, but he also said European nations should keep up the pressure to release not just Protesevich, but the other 400 political prisoners in Belarus. Belarus, by the way, is the only country, I think, in, in Europe now that still um, has the death penalty. Hmm. so uh, I think there's one thing what Protasevich uh, according to one eyewitness said uh, when they said the plane was diverted to Minsk was he stood up and said uh, I'm now going to uh, potentially get the death penalty for this um <clears throat> short said it was an opportunity to press for free elections in belarus where lukashenko has been in power for 27 years he's accused of rigging the result of last year's presidential election after which opposition leader svetlana Tikhanovskaya fled to vilnius where she's been in exile uh, ever since and uh, Tikhanovskaya is also having a meeting this friday i think with uh, mark rutter and uh, siri car and mm. <clears throat> it's kind of interesting subjects to, to go back to what we mentioned um Earlier on, about the cabinet reshuffle, of course, uh, Sigrid Kach is now foreign yeah. affairs minister in this, um, in, 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 in the uh, caretaker government, even though the new government hasn't been formed. And I think it, we can say pretty much with certainty that she will be foreign affairs minister in the new cabinet as well. I, have, I, I can't see her um, agreeing to give that job up to anybody else.
1: Yeah, seems to be background. the most likely outcome. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: yeah. But, uh, but, but she said. Um, um, At the weekend, that she felt that uh, the Netherlands had been, had had looked away from uh, the situation in Belarus for too long. I think it's immediately a signal that we're going to see a very different culture, I think, in the Dutch Foreign Affairs Ministry from Stef Bloch who was very much in the Rutter mould of... I mean, Rutter has taken the line during his uh, term as Prime Minister of uh, having quite a passive uh, foreign policy, only really getting into, involved in things when the Netherlands is directly involved, like the downing of MH17. Otherwise, things like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, which uh, brings Russian gas into Western Europe. He said, uh, you know, the Dutch are neutral in this, and it's a purely commercial thing. It's a very feyfei de strategy. Now I got uh, Sigrid Kaag of Deijsens zestig. I think pursuing a much more interventionist line in foreign affairs. I think you can see a real change of tone, and the fact they had to, she and uh, Rutte had to, uh, th- this big row over what's happening in uh, Israel and Palestine uh, is right. uh, is a sign that uh, yeah I think uh, you know th- th- she will want to take the foreign office in a much more um, in a very different direction, and we'll see a much more kind of assertive, strident Netherlands on the global stage than we've seen probably at any time during uh, uh, since Mark Rutter took office.
1: Amsterdam Mayor Femke Halsema's plan to reduce nuisance and crime caused by the soft drugs industry is doomed to fail, experts warned the city council. Halsema wants to enforce a national law in the capital that means only local residents can buy from coffee shops, effectively banning tourists from legally buying drugs. But some experts warned that the situation in the capital cannot be compared with other cities. They say this plan will backfire and lead to even more crime and nuisance as tourists will be forced to go underground and buy their drugs from street dealers, which will be disastrous for feelings of public safety, especially in dark corners and alleys in the capital. The experts also fear that the measures will lead to an increase of drug usage of under 18s, as more street dealers will make drugs more accessible to them as well. Additionally, selling drugs to tourists could also be an easy way into crime for youngsters, the experts warn. Halsma plans to finalize her plans later this year and has pledged to work out ways of tackling dealers. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real problem, right? Because mm. um, closing these, you know, all these tourists, they come to Amsterdam. Uh, yeah. Why? Because of the drugs and because of the prostitutes. I mean, you, yeah. if you go abroad and you tell someone that you're from the Netherlands, their immediate association is, ah, Amsterdam, drugs, uh, and prostitution. So
0: Yeah, now, as the Italian Eurovision uh, contestants uh, demonstrated this, this week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then the real problem here is just Amsterdam's image in the rest of the world. Um, so how are you going to solve hmm. that? How are, you, how are you going to solve that people will no longer associate Amsterdam with drugs? And do not come to Amsterdam for that. I, I, that's just uh, I just don't know how you're going to manage that. Um, there are other plans uh, as well because you know these drug tourists they often do not buy the most expensive hotel rooms and accommodations. So there are mm. plans to just reduce the the the, the low budget uh, hotels as much as possible. Um, that's one way to uh, to solve it. But, you know, uh, banning these, uh, these coffee shops will just mean more crimes in the streets. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a catch-22, I think.
0: People come to Amsterdam, as you say, expecting to be able to take drugs. It's one of the attractions that the city has. And, uh, yeah, if, if, if they turn up and they're told they can't go in a coffee shop, they will probably get it from elsewhere. And it's kind of interesting that these are exactly the arguments that were used when they first tried to restrict access to coffee shops for non-residents um, back, I think, in about 2012, and that was an argument that was used by the then mayor of Amsterdam, about yeah. van der Lan, who said, uh, "I'm not going to enforce this rule." Which then, of course, it was one of Fred Taven's uh, genius <laughs> plans. Um, <clears throat> he said, "I'm not going to enforce this rule uh, because it'll just mean that uh, more more people go out and buy drugs in the streets." Yeah. It was ultimately the the Pass experiments it was called failed uh, because in the places where they were uh, where they most wanted to introduce it, like uh, down in the south in Limburg, where people just drive across the border uh, to get drugs, they, they found exactly what um the experts are now warning about happened, which is that when people weren't going to coffee shops for drugs, they just uh, went out and uh, and, and went, went around uh, and and uh, went to street dealers instead. And that meant that you had more street dealers in neighborhoods and much more street crime, litter, nuisance, noise, you know, and then the quality of life went down on all fronts.
1: Yeah. And uh, Amsterdam did a uh, survey on their tourists, and they said that um, the survey showed that one-third of the tourists would not no longer travel to Amsterdam if they knew that drugs uh, became illegal. But, you know, these are people uh, that were already were in Amsterdam and were asked, uh, 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 would, would you travel? to? But the problem is, how do you uh, bring this message, how do you communicate that drugs are no yeah. longer legal in Amsterdam to the rest of the world? I mean, it's. Uh, I think that's yeah. an impossible... Uh, a task especially how are you going to advertise this so hang billboards yeah. in 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 london and in uh, <laughs> uh, Edinburgh and everywhere in the uk saying
0: Well, yeah. uh, just every uk airport yeah drugs are banned well. uh, in, uh, yeah. in amsterdam yeah it's yeah uh, i mean g- g- given that tourists are still turning up on queens day like eight years yeah. <laughs> after willeming's <laughs> under exactly. became king yeah you, know, you can't expect this uh th- th- this, this huge culture change to take place overnight
1: no, definitely. Yeah, that's a good, excellent point indeed. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the vergist toeristen as they know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we're never going to have uh, yeah, vergis-toeristen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Frank de Boer says that the Netherlands are aiming to win Euro 2021 after a seven-year absence from summer tournaments. De Boer announced his final 26-man squad this week. It includes two teenagers, Ajax's Ryan Gravenberg and Jurien Timber, although Timber will turn 20 on June the 17th, which is the day the Dutch play Austria. But not Captain Ferhe von Dijk, who hasn't recovered from a knee injury sustained in October, and Stefan Berfein is also left out uh, because he spent most of the season on the bench for Tottenham. The Netherlands will play their three group matches in Amsterdam against Ukraine, Austria and North Macedonia, which, uh, as we already said, doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. I, I did not expect North <laughs> Macedonia to come back in the podcast, but uh, ah. the, the, it, it's like the bonnetjes affair of this podcast.
0: Yeah. Never underestimate North Macedonia.
1: Exactly. Uh, and there was also some uphef in the squad as well, wasn't there? Uh,
0: yes, because uh, de Boer confirmed that six of his players had refused a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, They were offered priority vaccines, Uh, professional uh, sports people have been uh, prioritised because obviously they travel a lot. Um, They they were offered the vaccines by the Football Association during a pre-tournament training camp. So I guess it's a good thing they're not going to be traveling around or mixing with visitors (laughs) from from lots of different countries. De Boer said some players might have refused because they'd already had the virus, but as we don't know the names, we can't fact-check that. However, I think one name that is pretty certainly on the list is Walter Wechhorst, uh, who plays in Germany for Wolfsburg and has gone on German chat shows uh, disputing um, the effectiveness of the uh, corona vaccine and basically spouting all kinds of uh, Willemengel conspiracy theories. Yeah. So there's at least one vappy in the squad, and it seems seems like the infection has spread. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and even if you've had corona, you're still supposed to have the second shot. So that doesn't the fact that they've uh, they may have had the virus doesn't answer the uh, the question of why they've refused the vaccine.
1: Yeah, yeah, but Weghorst uh, uh, apologized publicly. I, he did apologize publicly. So, yes, yeah.
0: indeed, that is true. Yeah, I think,
1: uh, uh, I, I would think that, uh, you know, now the the, the the corona numbers and the uh, IC uh, um, uh, uh, numbers are going down. Uh, every time you had this public figure that was doubting a coronavirus, uh, we should have just given them a tour uh, through one of the IC units on, yeah. in the hospitals, I think. Uh, I mean, what what would be better to change their minds than to see what, what Corona can actually do to people and to see that yeah. these uh, intensive care um, uh, 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 departments are all full with people lying on their back, I mean, or, or on their belly. So, yeah,
0: it's. Uh, yeah, in hospital beds on ventilators, which mm. is not what you get during a regular flu season. Exactly. Much, uh, people pretend it is. Yeah. And, of course, all the knock on effect of people who have other conditions which had nothing to do with corona like you know cancer patients heart patients we have to wait for their operations yeah um, by contrast, uh, only two or three of the three hundred Olympic competitors uh, who've been offered the vaccine are thought to have declined. So hmm. good, good to see not all sports people. Are, yeah, they, they uh, are, are these the Olympic
1: sporters are all used to uh, to putting all sorts of uh, drugs in their in their bodies. So yeah, they this uh, is tr- <laughs> they would ju- they probably were just called that that this is uh, uh, performance enhancing drugs and yeah. they would just uh, take it without uh, without uh, a single thought. So yeah, that's my yeah. theory.
0: Uh, I guess the, the take-up in cycling is probably over 100%. Probably. <laughs> People are probably ordering extra vaccines. With, uh, I, I
1: think yeah. that percentage is 200%. <laughs> they just ask for more doses. Exactly. Oh, uh, and uh, uh, is there any other international sporting events uh, heading this way? Yeah, speaking of uh, cycling, uh,
0: the Vuelta de España, uh, one of the three big summer tour races, will start in Utrecht next year. The city was due to host the opening stages last year, but the race was cancelled uh, because of coronavirus. It's only the second time the Vuelta has started in the Netherlands. In 2009, the peloton rolled out in Assen, uh, probably over some Hunebeds, uh, hmm. And it marks the 900th anniversary of Utrecht's Foundation. There will also be stages starting in Den Bosch and Breda. So
1: The 900th anniversary of Utrecht's Foundation
0: that's what it said in the thing i was reading yes but utrecht was founded by the romans uh, oh it got cities got city status 900 years ago apparently.
1: oh is that um, okay yeah under, because, under uh, kaiser henrik v ah so. okay because utrecht was founded by uh the romans as a uh, an army base castellum trajectum it was famously called and um, yeah um, so it's much older than 900 years, but it's the city rights uh, anniversary. It's, become
0: a, it's been a city uh, okay. for 900 years. Okay. Yeah.
1: Good that we cleared this up. Yes, indeed. That's a good For me. <laughs> no, nobody nobody good, else uh, good, good cares about this, but <laughs> <laughs> at least it's good no, for good, me.
0: Important bit of a historical tri- trivia for anyone doing their Inbruchenskursus. Exactly. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl and if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnews.nl and you'll earn yourself a free shout-out on the next show. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week.